Hey everybody, welcome back to The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer at Schaefer Vineyards. Great to be with you again. Today we're talking to a guest who traveled the world to find out what he wanted to do with his life, and he ended up becoming a winemaker at one of Napa Valley's top wineries. I'm really excited to talk to this guy and learn more about his story and about the wines he's been making for 20 years at Opus One. So let's get started. Welcome back, everybody, to The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer, and today we've got a great guest on. He's a longtime winemaker, I think over 20 years, at Opus One Winery, Michael Salachi. He uh, used to be my neighbor here when he made wine at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars in the mid-'90s, but he he left. He went to Oakville, to Opus, and now I don't see him anymore because Oakville's really far away from Stag's Leap. So uh, good to have him on, and uh, Michael, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much, Doug. It's, uh, we spoke about this a while ago, and I'm glad. I've always wanted to do it, and it just seemed we never had the, never would able to, were able to synchronize our calendars, but this is fantastic. Good to no. hear your voice. You too, man, you too. And uh, things are getting better out there in the world, so uh, we'll be able to go have lunch together soon. I'm looking forward Ex- to that. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, got a lot to cover with you. There's your story. There's the Opus One story. But before all that, let's go all the way back to the beginning. You know, where did you come from? Talk to me. I was born in Gilroy, California at the Wheeler Hospital at 2.53 in the morning on July 6, 1953. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I'm a moon child. Got it. So I grew up in Gilroy. We um, lived a little bit in Morgan Hill, which is not... uh, just on the edge of the sticks. Um, and uh, basically, my formative years, I grew up on um, my grandfather's dairy farm. And we had, my grandparents, both sets, lived close to each other. Mm-hmm. And so I had one pair of grandparents that had plum orchard and a dehydrator. And to this day, I just love the uh, smell of prunes. And the other um, is just my grandfather. He had a dairy farm. You know, and when I smell a Britannomyces wine, <laughs> I kind of like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're but, um, all products of our early educations, for sure. We are. And then the uh, third smell in the neighborhood was when I drove forklift at the, uh, at the local garlic and onion plant um, wow. on the graveyard shift. So um, I got exposed to those types of aromas fairly early. You were a farm boy. You were uh, working work in ranches and farms. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. And a shit kicker because, you know, we'd walk down the... Uh, the pasture um, between the levees, and we—that's how we fertilize. We just kick the cowpoys and let the water take them around, and you know, spread it out and fertilize. So, yeah, I've done it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my boots have seen <laughs> the bottom. Of my boots have seen many things. <laughs> I love it. I love but it. But no necks. No necks. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, growing up in the country, kind of the country, the sticks. And uh, how about high school? What were you into? Uh, Gilroy High School, I played football, I uh, took uh, Latin, I took the first year of Latin, knowing that the program would be discontinued, but I still wanted to start learning Latin, and then I switched to, um, to German, and uh, I, I really enjoyed school, uh, I was uh, in student council, and just had a lot of fun, and playing, you know, playing football, lots of, you know, of course you're hanging out with all your friends there. But I didn't, in all of my school years, I never like was in a clique. I was uh, like a hummingbird of cliques. I'd go from one clique to the other and just 
try to be friends with uh, is with everybody because um, I didn't want to get you know I didn't want to fall into a, a group mentality. But I I got to ask you I got to stop you for a minute because anytime I've ever heard anyone speak about Latin or taking Latin, it was just like oh I had to take it. It was a requirement. Oh I don't want to do it. So you actually I I got to ask you why did you want to take Latin? Because it's the root of uh, so many Romance languages. Okay. And, uh, and you can understand with Greek or Latin the meanings of many words without having to look them up in, uh, in the dictionary or now Google. That's why I took it. Well, it just shows that you were kind of tuned in because um, I certainly wouldn't have been in that headspace at all. So it kind of, I think that kind of leads into my next question because what happened after high school? Well, I didn't. Uh, I was accepted at UC Santa Cruz, and I decided I didn't want to go to university until I found what I wanted to be when I grew up. So, I worked um, at my with my grandfather. I worked um, at a local uh, clothing store. I drove a Pepsi Cola truck, delivering um, cartoon glasses to Taco Bell's. Um, I worked for Pepsi Cola for a while. And then I um, decided that I was going to travel and I wasn't coming home until I found what I wanted to do in life. So I headed out to Japan, <laughs> stopped, in, stopped in Hawaii, <coughs> Honolulu for just, a, it was going to be a weekend. So we went to, went to Maui and um, camped on a beach north of Kanapali Beach Resort for three months. And I didn't want to spend any money. So I got a job bussing tables and washing uh, dishes at the Sea Scoop restaurant in the Kanapali uh, Village Resort, or Village. And, and I hadn't been to Maui for ever in a day. And I was with Steve Palumbo, who was, was our West Coast sales manager. Um, and we went to do an event at, I think it was, was Ritz-Carlton. Right. And I said, hey, can I borrow the car? <laughs> and I, I think that that resort was built on the area that I actually lived on the beach. Was, so I had come back. I had closed yet another you, circle. You closed the circle. But so what, what year are we talking about when you're at, out of high school? I graduated in 1971, and this was in 75 when I left. Right. And then ended up in Japan. And But I got I to stop you because I'm curious for my own I'm just curious. You're camping on the beach for three and a half months. How do you do that? Like, well, today, I mean, maybe you couldn't do it today, but as far as, you know, legally, safety, you know, that type of thing, that was, that was okay to do, is what you're telling yeah, me. We did, uh, we did have to move once because there was a uh, hepatitis outbreak nearby. <laughs> and so, you know, that whole area was being, you know, we were, we were alone. Got it. Uh, there was just a few of us there. Um, and uh, so we had to find another spot, but uh, left shortly after that. <laughs> also, some, Sunday, <laughs> some Sundays we'd go to the Hare Krishna uh, events, you know, where you'd chant and have great uh, um, vegetarian food. Um, anyway, so it was, it was fun. <laughs> okay. Then no I went um, from Hawaii to Japan in, uh, in wintertime. I went to Japan because... I wanted to go to a place where it would be very difficult to go home. For example, let's say you go somewhere, and you know how when you first start something, um, a trip or university or whatever, you kind of, you're, you're not really secure about it, and, 
and you can easily just give up on it. Right. So I wanted to go to a place that would be difficult for me to get home because I had a one-way ticket if <laughs> I didn't like it or if I panicked or whatever. And I fell in love with it. I <laughs> So I arrive on a night flight, I mean late afternoon flight, and I showed the information booth people the, the um, um, what do you call it, the youth hostel mm -hmm. where I wanted to stay. And so they wrote down instructions for me, and then they called somebody over and had that person get me to uh, the first subway, and then, the, then they, they got somebody to get me off at the next stop to get me on the next. I was passed off like a baton <laughs> from person to person. I arrive in the, um, in the, um, the final subway stop, and the, the police booth, they showed me how to, I had to walk across this big park, uh, which you'd never, I did once in, almost did once in New York City, uh, which was foolish uh, at, at really late at night. But I, this was not a dangerous park. I end up at the youth hostel like 9.59. And if I were to have arrived at 10.01, they would not let me in. You know, they're oh, wow. very strict. So stayed there and then uh, wanted to go to Kyoto to see the temples. And um, so, so they put they put me, I go to the train station to get a ticket, and they put me on the Shinkansen, which is the fat bullet train. Right. I had no idea. I get on this train, because I had never been on a train before, other than, you know, like Santa Cruz, you know, where you go through the Redwoods and right. Big Basin or whatever. So I get on this train, and holy smokes, hold on to your hat and get your seatbelt on, because it was, I think it was the fastest train in the world at that time. The French with the TGV were always competing with the Japanese to have the fastest train in the world. Um, so then arriving in, in, in Kyoto, and also I'd known about the Shinkansen because my grandfather was really into stuff like that. And he always said, look at this bullet train. And, and, uh, and so I got to write a postcard <clears throat> telling him that I had been on the Shinkansen, <clears throat> excuse me, and stayed in this um, uh, place called Tani House. It was a tatami mat um, private hostel. Mm -hmm. And I just went back to work and, uh, no, I went back on vacation uh, last week of February, first week of March in 2020, and went to see the Tani House, just to, just to compare, you know, places where you've stayed. Um, and then from there, um, I went back to Tokyo. Um, my sister had gone elsewhere. Uh, we split up and then she was going to Tokyo, so I went to meet her in Tokyo. And in the youth hostel, there was a French woman, and my sister said, yeah, there's this French woman just wearing clogs with no socks. And, <laughs> and so I uh, went over, and, and she was, we, I was talking to her, and I said, do you know where the French woman is without any socks? Because she spoke perfect English. And she said, well, I'm French, and I don't have any socks. And so I, 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 I gave her my favorite pair of green socks. And then I headed off uh, to, where did I go, Taiwan, and then Taiwan, and then Philippines, and bumped into her by chance in a market in the Philippines. So my sister saw a Canadian woman who we had met named Ellen, and she, D Debbie said, Ellen. And then Ellen said, Debbie. And I said, Rajan. And she said, Michael. <laughs> and um, so anyway, we, had, uh, we were in every, every country that I visited, I stayed the maximum uh, for a visa. If, you, if I had three months, I'd stay three months. 
<clears throat> so you but were tra in, you were traveling. Uh, so you were traveling, just going to different countries. So what'd you do about money? Were you working? I mean, how'd, how'd that work out? No, I saved up money. So, okay, so you were just and, traveling. Yeah, and and uh, for example, the most expensive place I would have been to was Japan, but I had actually made more money than I uh, needed to live in in Hawaii, so I had that money. Right. Uh, of course, camping on the beach. <laughs> what do yeah. you spend money on? <laughs> right. Um, and then um, eventually made my way to um, to Europe. Went to Locarno, near Locarno, Valley Vrzaska, where my grandfather is from. All my grandparents came from uh, the Swiss, uh, the Italian part of Switzerland. Oh. So, I, on all your travels, I got to ask you this at some point: um, Was had the wine thing kicked in? Was that part of your traveling experience? Were you drinking wine? Were you drinking beer? I'm just kind of curious because you're in your early to mid twenties at this point, so I'm just curious yes. about that. So, beer in Japan, uh, along with sake. And then in, uh, never forget this island, the Chocolate Hills, or Se was it Cebu or the Chocolate Hills? Where, because San Miguel beer was amazing and it was only, f you know, like five cents a bottle. It had some Thai beer also in Thailand, but basically it was beer. But I had um, been turned on, or my grandfather always drank wine. Okay. And so I drank wine with him. And we would go to uh, Peter Scagliotti's winery out on the Hecker Pass. My grandfather, <laughs> he always had a white Cadillac. He had a, a four gallon jugs in the back of his car in a cardboard box. So we'd go and he, Peter, Mr. Scagliotti would, would siphon wine and fill up his jugs and they would have a glass of wine and tell dirty jokes. Then we'd get back in the car and go home. <laughs> and we'd have... <laughs> And so I had a little bit of wine with him every now and again. Right. And then uh, the first bottle of wine I ever purchased was um, uh, 1974, I think. Uh, 74 Robert Mondavi Reserve. And that was 750, and everyone thought I was crazy for spending that much money on a bottle of wine. So I, lo I liked wine. Right. So anyway, fast forward to when I arrive in France. I knock on the door of the woman who I'd met, who I'd given these green socks to, and in Paris, and she, and the only French I knew was Bon Voyage, and, <laughs> and she said, if you want to learn to speak French, eat well, and earn money, you should pick grapes. Ah. So I got, got a haircut, borrowed a car, went to Nantes, and drove out in the countryside of Nantes, and drove into this little domain, this courtyard. And there was a fellow named Georges loading, loading sacks of sugar into the back of a little van. And I said to him, because I had practiced all the way down like a good Californian or a good Hare Krishna, I want a job picking grapes. I want a job picking grapes. So I, <laughs> I said to him, bonjour, I want a job picking grapes. And he <laughs> smiled because he figured that that's probably all this kid knows. He said he made me understand that if I helped him finish loading the van with uh, the sacks of sugar, he would find a job for me because he, he had a full team. So we um, went and delivered the sugar and then he takes me over to uh, Domaine du Grand Mouton, uh, mm -hmm. which is Louis Metro's property. And I got a job there. And so I didn't speak any French, but it was like working at McDonald's if you don't read English you just look at the pictures and press the, you know, the Big Mac or whatever. 
And so I would just look at what other people were doing. And at the end of the rows, and it's funny, um, even though it's more of a social democracy there, <laughs> you get to the end of the rows. You know, here when people are picking, because they, they pick as a team. Right. They, when somebody finishes their row, they'll come back and help their neighbor, their neighboring row, right? There, social democracy, but they get to the end of the row, they have a glass of wine from the bouvette, and you're on your own to get to that end of the row because you're picking as a team, all right, the whole country of France, because you're all being paid the same no matter what you okay. do. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and then I would um, follow people when they usually tell me it's time for lunch, and we'd go inside and Doug, I fell in love with two-hour lunches and wine. And that's Whoa, where... Oh, so that's, that's where it hit. That's where it hit. Oh, wow. And I'll never forget the time where, I, where when we went to pick at one of the reserve blocks right adjacent to uh, Mr. Metero's house. And he came outside. And he, we're all standing around the, at the end of the rows. And he looks left and he looks right and he says... He asked, where's the bouvette? And the foreman was trying to get away because he had forgotten to bring the bouvette. Bouvette is just a little like wheelbarrow with all the wine and water. And he had to confess that he had forgotten it. Uh -oh. Mr. Metro runs into his house and comes out with bottles of his reserve surly um, uh, muscadet, which, you know, this is not an expensive wine. But it was so hot that day, Doug, and I was so thirsty. We just passed it around, yeah, drinking out of the bottle, and it was the most because it's just a fine, fine, fine effervescence. It was just the most delicious thing I ever tasted in my life. So that's where I really that's where I got the uh, uh, the bug. And what I wanted to do is I wanted I had read about uh, the Compagnon, which is a a group. It's like a tradesman group, craftsman, the trades group in the Middle Ages in France and they worked with wood and they would um, they would go to one area to learn how to make let's say wooden chairs and then they would work during the day as an apprentice and study at night under uh, with a candle like mm -hmm. candlelight and they would be there for about six months and then they go to the next area of France and they would do a tour de France a uh, tour of France sorry right. and they would go to each area learning how to make work with wood in a different way Huh. And I thought, that's what I want to do. Um, in Muscadet, I want to go to Bordeaux, and then I want to, uh, then I want to go to... Um, I actually worked in Cognac as well. Okay. Uh, then I want to go to South... I wanted to do a tour of France learning how to make wine. But I realized very quickly that although I have an I at the end of my name, Silachi, it's not... My name is not Mandavi, nor is it Vinyarski. <laughs> so <laughs> I had absolutely no contacts. And, and so um, I thought the next best thing would be to go to, uh, uh, to school. But I um, traveled, uh, traveled a lot there on bicycle. Uh, I worked doing, making, um, doing, making decorations for Estee Lauder and Lancaster and uh, Revlon. Um, I worked for a company called Garland Zero uh, One. It was a commune. The thing that we did that was the most fun and exciting was we were going to do something for Estee Lauder when they um, brought out the Orient Express okay. line. Of, so we went to the, um, the, the um, train yard in Paris where they had all the antiques. 
and these, you know, all the workers in, in France, are, they wear these blue coveralls. And so we told them we wanted to talk to them about that, and they just put brushes and said, no, 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 you know, no, 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 you know, we don't know what you're talking about. So we just stuck with them. And what did the trick was when I agreed to, to have a shot of their homemade uh, spirits. And I'm just praying that there's, this is not Methanol City. And knocked back a couple, and we were in like Flint, and we could have whatever we wanted. So we built these <laughs> for three, in three different perfume, perfumeries in Paris. You'd walk by, and you'd look into the big window, and you would be looking into a cabin of the Orient Express, like the dining car or a sleeper car. It was, it was so much fun doing that. What was also fun is that I would always get help from the staff in a perfume shop, especially when I went on my own, because I had an accent, I was alone, and they felt, and I, and I gave that puppy dog look in my, <laughs> from my eyes, and they'd all help me out. Whereas when I was with the French guys, they would just be told off or, you know, don't park in the front of the, you know, they'd be, they'd be kind of uh, not very pleasant with them. So um, they often sent me alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So you're, so you're doing everything. And uh, so when did you, at this point you're heading home? Is that what the next step was? Uh, almost. I rode, um, we, I rode bicycle to Corsica and back up to Paris and then from Paris to Stockholm and back to Paris. And then um, I went and, uh, no, and then I did, we did one more trip. We rode bicycle to the middle, middle of the Sahara Desert and hmm. back out. Wow. And then I went to, um, came home. And I, so I go, to, I bought a, my mom had this old car sitting on the, in, in the yard for, um, you know, as an extra car for people like me, <laughs> the, prod, the prodigal son. And uh, say, so take this car going to Davis because I'm going to, I want to go to school at Davis. And um, the car breaks down in Dixon. And it was when it, when the, the you know, remember Dix, Dixon eight, smelled eight, like a. Yeah, eight miles away or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And the air was filled yet with another aroma of that of a slaughterhouse. Right. Um, and so get the, it was a fuel pump that went out, had it fixed. So I go to the admissions office, stand in line, I'm, I'm, get my turn in the woman said, yes, what can I help you with? And I, I asked her, well, when does the next quarter start? And she said, um, in, f in four weeks or five weeks, whatever it was. And I right. said, great, I want to come. And she didn't know what to say. Because um, <laughs> I, you know, I hadn't been out of school. You know, I didn't really know, think about these things. And she said, but I, I, you can't just come. You have to <laughs> fill out an application. And you know, the earliest you could come would be you know, the quarter after this one. And... And so I, um, I said, okay, but it's the best thing that ever happened to me because I did get a reality check. Yeah. Um, and I went to, I went to, I, I hadn't been in school for a few years. So I went to City College of San Francisco and I took typing, library science, um, chemistry, uh, trigonometry, uh, and something else, French, I think. I had a full load. But I learned everything I needed to, to the infrastructure, the mental infrastructure, you know, got to know how to type, got to right. know how to use a library. And then I went to school at Davis. So I got to stop you. So this is great. So you're probably what? How old are you at this point? Mid-20s? I was 20. I was, that would have been in 1983. 
Uh, so I was close to 30. I was, yeah, I was Got it. 30. Okay, and so you'd been, you'd been traveling for years, four, three or yeah. four or five years, and you promised mm-hmm. yourself you weren't going to go to college until you'd figured out what you were going to do. You left on your worldwide travels. Um, and so when you came back, you came, you came back, we're focused on I'm going to be I'm going to be a winemaker. Was that was that the the deal? Well, according to Corneo, Doctor O, and Doctor Singleton, and Doctor Doctor Kunky, um, I had blurred vision okay. because I told them I want to have a degree in viticulture and enology, and they said they chuckled. They said, No, 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 you can't do that. Yeah, I you remember have to, that. You have, you have to choose one or the other, and I said, Well, why? And I said, in France they do it. And they said, this isn't France, son. And so I, so I chose analogy. That's funny. And, but, but what I did, Doug, is I took all of the classes, because I was so motivated. I didn't have to deal with the social uh, stuff. Uh, I was really motivated on getting a degree. And so I took all the classes that were prerequisites for graduate work. Because I felt, I'm going to do take my, what I have to take anyway, like I'm going to take the harder chemistry, the harder physics, et cetera, whatever I need to get into graduate school, because you'd, you'd take the, the, if you didn't plan, you'd have to take them, you'd have to take the higher, the harder, the upper division course um, um, again. So right. I didn't, I didn't want to do that. So then I um, went to, I decided I was going to go, I went, went into plant science to, because I wanted to be a viticulturist. I wanted to, have that side. I wanted to have. I had my degree in. Actually, I have. I have to sidestep for a second. I did my general ed at Davis, and then I took a, a PELP. Uh, PELP is um, plant planned educational leave. Something program. So I after my general ed, I went to the University University of Bordeaux, and the Institute of Enology, and I got a degree in. It was like uh, just in enology. Okay. Uh, and then came and did an internship with Denis de Bourdieu, and uh, so it was all white wine, some reds, and then also worked a little, it didn't really work, I can't say I did an internship at Doisy Dane, but I was exposed to uh, Barzac Sauterne with his, his father, so his... So <laughs> what was, so you jumped over to Bordeaux, so that just you just wanted to get as much exposure to different things as you could is what I'm guessing. Yes, the and the other thing was uh, the, the Green Sox girl, Oh, yeah. um, whatever happened she, to her? Well, we eventually got married. Oh, and we God. had we had a we have a daughter. We're no longer together. Okay, um, but you know that those things happen. Mm-hmm. So anyway, she said, "I'm I don't want to. I need to go home for a little bit." I see. And I'm, I'm, she was tired. Of, she was bored with California, and so uh, we went to France. And she taught English, and I went to school. Okay, and um, Pierre. Du Bourdieu, his son is a professor at, at the University of Bordeaux, and he knew I had just uh, finished classes there. It was like, it was perfect. He said, "We he said, let's go check the temperatures of the fermentations." We right. Go the t- <laughs> we go into the tank room. He put his hand against the tank and feel. Uh, <laughs> feel I've the done that. I do that but, all the time. Yeah, you know. But he would not <laughs> even look at the temperature. He's doing this to a kid who just got out of college, right? <laughs> or was in midstream. And then he'd say, well, we got to chill this down a little bit. But he did everything. Oh, that's great. Just, it was fantastic. And, it, and I, it was great to be exposed to that. Anyway, I just thought it was hilarious no, because his, 
his son was doing all of these experiments at his winery, and his father's feeling tanks to see if the fermentation temperature is correct. Well, so, I, you know, I'm, I get that. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and you do too at this stage. You know, we all, we're all kind of tuned in that way. You know, it's exactly. Kind of, it's a lot of feel, a lot of gut feel. Yeah. The, the best thing you can put uh, in, in your vineyard or in your cellar, your own two feet. Mm -hmm. There you go. Look at you. I have to put that one on the wall somewhere. <laughs> so cool. So you're Davis, Bordeaux, and then you're back to Davis. Is that how it worked? Yeah, I went back to Davis, finished my undergraduate degree in enology, fermentation science. And then I um, spent a year. Um, I only had to, to be in, in uh, class and doing my experiment for one year because I had gotten so many prerequisites out of the way. And I was with uh, uh, Janice Morrison. And she was, uh, she was very proud that her first student, master student, had to rewrite his, uh, they passed his thesis back and forth like a ping pong ball eight times. Wow. So <clears throat> I had, <clears throat> I had uh, applied for and gotten a position at Bullew Vineyard as enologist slash viticulturist. And <clears throat> Tony Bell, uh, you learn a lot during interviews because first interview I show up, and uh, it's about a good half an hour, 40 minutes before I actually get into interview with, with Tony and I think Joel. Joel, I think Joel was at the first one, maybe he's at the second one. Was Joel there? Third, yeah, Joel was yeah, there. Joel, was, was he winemaker there at that point? Uh, yes, that was in, yeah. uh, yes. He, I think he was winemaker in 85, if I, if I remember correctly. Got it. Yeah, he and I were, uh, he and I were classmates at Davis, so he, we go way back. So um, my third interview was like sitting in the little antechamber waiting room for about an hour and a half. And, and then I go into the conference room and it's Tony, Joel, and um, Tom Selfridge. Okay. And Tom Selfridge said, you know, you realize that you're going to be reporting to Tony and you're working with Joel too. And, you know, you're not going anywhere. You're an enologist, viticulturist. You're not going to like move, be moving up the food chain anytime soon because this winery was founded in 1900, and um, on and on. That's I said, yeah, I understand. En en I, encouraging to you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But I said, this is perfect because I want to be at a place where I can really start to understand how things go. And mm -hmm. Joel is, was such a great uh, mentor and teacher. Um, so I was good with that. But uh, a, year and, a year and a half later, I was uh, in the role of production manager, and I was overseeing um, grow relations. I think I was, yeah, grow relations and crew and bottling uh, and experimental winemaking. And then a year after that, I, um, they formed the Hublin. And I was working also with Tony. We were doing a lot with Inglenook as well. So um, then a year after that, I um, Hublin Fine Wine Group was formed. So it was Quail Ridge, Christian Brothers, um, Inglenook, and uh, Beaulieu. Right. And I became viticulturist for the Hublin Wine Fine, Fine Wine Group. And um, I worked with uh, five different winemakers, five different vineyard management companies, and 85 grape growers. We owned, leased, or <laughs> worked with 4,000 acres of Napa Valley Vineyard. And... I did not have an administrative assistant. 
No, you know, you've always been the nicest guy and the easiest to get along with, and now I know why. <laughs> I mean, God, Michael, that must have been crazy. Think about all this stuff, especially like at Harvest, when everybody wants this and that, and it's got to be this way, and this guy wants it this way, this guy wants it another way. Oh, how'd you keep but, it straight? Well, I learned an invaluable skill, and that is to convince other people it was in their best interest to help you accomplish something. And... I, I became very good at that. Huh. Uh, so good at it that when I, my first, uh, when I first arrived at Opus, um, I was told. Actually, I had seven interviews to get here, but that's a whole other story. But my first uh, time when I first arrived at Opus, um, a woman, a Swiss woman named Umno Shard, came to my office. She was really buttoned up, like all Swiss are. No smile. Walked into my office and reminded me that I was responsible for three. Uh, events. The um, Cinco de Mayo, because I started on March 5th, 2001. So Cinco de Mayo was coming up, the harvest party and the blessing of the grapes. <laughs> I said, yes, that's great. Yes. Uh, she said, but you know, Cinco de Mayo is coming. You need to plan that. And I said, okay, well, why don't you sit down? No, I don't want to sit down. Finally, I got her to sit down. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe half an hour later or so, she leaves my office and with a big smile on her face, goes out the door and they're like French doors so I can see her. And then I see her stop dead in her tracks, and the smile goes away, and she gets a furrowed brow, and she comes back into my office, and she says, Michael, I came here telling you everything that you need to do for the Cinco de Mayo party, and I'm leaving doing everything. And I looked at her, and I said, well, yes, of course you are. I'm paid to manipulate people and make them feel good about it. <laughs> so <laughs> Look at you. I did, I did. Oh. But of course I worked with her. I mean, but, yeah, but I it, was, it was just, but that's what I learned. I mean, you... In uh, you know, like working at, in that as viticulturist said, with that group, that's what I had to learn how to do. Mm -hmm. You bet. And you got to work with uh, Andre, right? As yes, Andre yeah, Chelichev. Tell us, tell us about that because he's uh, his name comes up quite often, and he's you know a wonderful, wonderful man and a wonderful part of you know fine wine in Napa Valley. You got to work with him. Tell us about that. Well, I first met him, I mean, I first saw him. I never really met him until, um, until I was at Bullyu. But um, he, he was talking at Davis, and he was just amazing. Um, the intensity, the passion, the focus. So then uh, they told me that they had, Ron Batori, they had hired Andre as a, as a consultant, and he was going to spend half a day in the vineyard every week and half a day uh, at Beaulieu with the, with the winemaking team. So um, I meet him at the child's house at Inglenook and he's sitting at one end of the table, I'm at the other in the room. Is, we're, I mean, we're all sitting, I just happen to be sitting at the other end of the table. And they introduced me to him uh, and he said, I'm looking forward to you taking me to your kingdom and exploring your kingdom with you. Oh, wow. And <laughs> No pressure. And so, the, <laughs> no. so the first couple of times we went out to the vineyard, and he always, I would pick him up at his house. And he and I would have biscotti uh, and coffee that Dorothy would prepare this, and she would sit with us. And we would talk, the two of us would talk about what we would do together to make Bullyu great again. And then we'd go off to start always at his favorite vineyard, BV5, which is um, a vineyard in Carneros with Pinot and different clones. And actually, the very, um, I was told that uh, Andre was not, we had a, 
I'm sorry, I'm jumping around, but I have to give you some context. In Tokelon, uh, Beckstraffer Tokelon, there was a 10-acre strip on the, on the east side. It's a beautiful, probably the best part of that vineyard, that we had 14 different Cabernet clones randomly in a randomized design pattern, eight different replicates of each. And we would make the wine in this room we called the clone room with uh, olive oil, in olive oil, plastic olive oil drums. And so I was told, do not take Andre to, don't ever do anything with him with the, with the, with the wine. Don't, tell, don't talk to him about the colonial trial, blah, blah, blah. And part of it was they, I don't know why they wanted to keep him out of it, but they used the excuse that his son Dimitri's working with us on that and they don't want any conflicts. <clears throat> so San Francisco Chronicle wants to do an article on Andre coming back to bully you. <laughs> so... Where do we get the picture taken? In the vineyard with all the clone, <laughs> with all the clones. Oh, no. And he, of course, he's, he starts talking to me about it. And so one day when I, um, when I uh, well, I'm going to go back to this pickup story. We're in the vineyard, uh, and the third time, you know, he'd, we'd be driving around, and he'd be telling me, this is amazing what you're doing, and just patting me on the back and telling me how great, you know, the vineyards look, et cetera. Third visit, we're in BB-5, and I stopped, turned off the pickup, and I looked at him, and I said, I think that they're paying you a lot of money not to tell me what I'm doing that's great, but to tell me where I can improve and what's wrong with what I'm doing. <clears throat> he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, all you're doing is telling me nice things, and I think you're supposed to critique my work, not you know, tell me all the good side. And so he said, and that's what you want me to do? And I said, yes. And he said, and will, be, will, will you promise me that we, we will still be friends at the end of every session? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes. And he reached his hand out and we shook hands and he said, I will do that. <laughs> oh, man. So I don't know if you remember um, um, that Dustin Hoffman, Little Big Man, right. when he meets uh, Custer, and he tells Custer, Custer asks General George Custer, should I go down there, Mule, Mule Skinner? He said, if you go down there, you will be um, uh, massacred. And he said, so the Mule Skinner thinks that if he tells me blah, blah, blah. So he's trying to reverse logic the guys. So he goes, right. <laughs> let's go down there. So he goes down and they get ambushed. So that's what it was like with Andre, huh. Ment mentally. We'd go out and then he'd lead me down into the valley and then he'd bury me with crit criticism. Right. <laughs> But, um, but one day we were walking, uh, he said, let's, oh, so I asked if we could buy a, um, like an ATV. And I was told no, because that would be an asset. And everything was judged um, by a return on asset. And <laughs> so I said, well, but he can't walk very far. We just get barely to the edge of the vineyard. Yeah. Well, just drive between the, in the avenues. Then I, I said, well, how about it? Can I rent one? And he said, oh, yeah, you can rent one. I said, but you realize that the, the rental just for one season will be more expensive than if we bought one. Right. doesn't matter. It's not an asset. Oh, man. <laughs> and so we, we, um, Mike Walsh took it out and had it ready for us at um, Carner, uh, Carneros Hills Vineyard. And um, we go out and I said, Andre, do you know what that is? And he says, no, it was one of those John Deere um, ones with the two seats and the, right, right. the gator, I guess they call it. Yeah. And he, he said, what is it? And I said, 
Well, most people would call that an uh, ATV, Andre, but I call it an AVT. And he said, well, what is an ATV? It's an, an uh, all-terrain vehicle. Well, then what is an AVT? And I said, an Andre Victor Chelichev mobile. And <laughs> we would go between the rows and he'd stop me, back it up, taste this, taste that. And, and we were in a Chardonnay block and he said, Let's, we're tasting the fruit, and then we were going up this hill, and he said, stop. Did you notice a change in flavor? Hmm. I said, not really. We, went, we backed up, went forward, backed up, and went forward until I could find the place where the flavor changed. And then he said, okay, now back up again. He said, just look ahead of you. Do you see anything that might indicate why the flavors were changing? And I'm looking, and I said, yes, the soil got lighter. And he said, that's it. And he said, do you see any other area where it might change? And I said, yes, up there, at almost just below the crest of the hill, where the soil is yet a third color. And he said, very good, grasshopper. And, uh, <laughs> so, but he taught me how to, how to taste fruit to make harvest decisions. Yeah. And it was eye-opening because, you know, when I first started uh, in the industry, it, you know, we had those grape contracts, and there were windows of... Um, of ripeness, and if you were off a tenth of a degree, uh, like if you were anywhere uh, right or left of 22.7, I think was the number, um, you would be penalized. And so I, the, he had opened my eyes up to this whole new world, and so I called the Joel and them, and I said, hey, can we pick, he actually, Andre asked me, he said, I know it's not a large amount, we defined an area that could be picked. He said, would you call and see if we can pick this? So I called and they said, well, what is the sugars? And I said, well, it's this. And they said, no, the sugars are too low. And I said, but it tastes, you know, come down and taste with us. They, they, went, they were too busy. They couldn't taste, couldn't taste with us. Next time we're, we find this is in a um, penal block where we had cordon versus cane, um, T-bar versus uh, vertical. And we found one of the treatments that was perfect. Call again. Can we pick this? What's the sugar? 21.8. You're crazy. There's not picking anything at 21.8. Well, come and taste it. And no. Right. Third, third time is always a charm, right? I went to um, BV1 right across the street from Beaulieu, and the numbers were textbook perfect. And I said, but the fruit's not ready. If, just come out and look at it. It's got this purplish color that's just not quite ripe yet. Mm hmm and they said, no, we're, let's bring it in. The numbers are perfect. And then they saw it in the, in the gondolas, and they said, okay. And they stopped. You know, we had picked half the block. But that was the first time where we made any headway. Um, um, and Andre, one day, I was, um, now going back to the clone trial, um, we're sitting at the house having <laughs> biscotti and coffee, and he said, he asked me, so how are the clone wines doing? <laughs> and, I, and I said he knew about them oh he knew uh, about them yeah I said oh they're they're great and then something a thought came to mind and I asked him would you like to taste them and he it was like as if I said because these are 14 different selections right right it was as if I asked a child do you want to go taste all 31 flavors at Baskin Robbins <laughs> he he was so excited and why why did I do that Doug well, all the top brass was in Hartford, Connecticut. <laughs> oh, yeah. But what, all about, the, what about Dimitri? It was his baby, right? 
Dimitri was a, it, was it Dimitri? Everyone was uh, Andre's son, and he was winemaker at the time at BV, or was he? He was on the team. He, I think he was. He was a consultant for Consult, the, okay. the the clone trial. Got it. And he that guy's a fantastic was a fantastic taster. He'd tell me. I said, "How?" He asked me, "Michael, do you want to know how I make the final decisions on blends and whatever?" Said, "No, please tell me." Because he'd always say, well, I think this one's probably it. And then he'd say, well, I go take the, the glasses home, take the samples home. And when I wake up in the morning and look at the table and see which one's empty or the lowest volume, that's the blend. <laughs> there you go. So, so I call ahead and I called Jeffrey Stambor. No, I called Linda Hansen, who was a, um, an intern at the time. I think she's at Hansel now. Um, great person. Um, we used to have ice cream every Tuesdays after work. Anyway, I said, could you get all the clone wines and set it up in Lee Knoll's old office, a place for four of us, you, me, Jeffrey, and uh, uh, Andre. Mm -hmm. So we, we go to Lee Knoll's old office, and I said to Andre, so these, this is the, the clonal trial, as I, as I explained to you before. We were in the vineyard, and the objective is to determine which one of these wines best fits Georgia Latour Private Reserve. I said, okay. So we taste through twice, and then he gets my attention and he whispers to me across. I said, what was the objective? <laughs> and I said, the objective is to determine which is the best suited for Georgia Tour Prime Reserve. So he tastes through a third time and he sits quietly waiting for us. And we, we finished tasting and I said, uh, he asked me, would you like to know what I think? I said, well, kind of the objective here, Andre. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, there's one on the table that I think is would be perfect and um it's got the, he described it as you know beautiful concentration uh the the intensity um the finish the length of the finish the the fruit character but mostly mouthfeel he said but i think that the bean counters in connecticut won't there's probably a problem with this one i think i think it's probably low yield and you won't be able to use it it's this one that you have it's the green one the green clone said and then there's one that is not it's really good but it it uh, is more restrained than this green one but i think it's probably it'd be fine quantity and quality uh the yellow one and he said and he said and this one over here the red black one that's the one my son dimitri likes the best he was spot on wow the green the green clone was the jackson clone which mm. you know has a problem with infertile pollen, so mm -hmm. very low yields, but incredible wine. The yellow one was clone four, the one that came through uh, Mendoza right. and is used quite a bit. And the third one was uh, Inra 5197, and it had a problem with stem pitting, but it was the one that his son Dimitri liked the best. <laughs> but no, he's good. He was great. Yeah, he was a great he one. Was. So BV, I think you were there for two or three years? Is that no, I was right? there for I was there for a little over six years. Over six years, if, my my yeah. mistake. I apologize. And then no. uh, and then you got hired away by my neighbor. Be, Tell me about that one. No, no, no. There was an interim stop. Oh, no, Andre said to me one one morning, um, "There's a place that needs you, and there and you need to be there. You need to be a winemaker. You can't be asking people to pick grapes and they don't want to do it." So. Um, you're you have you're going to be a winemaker, but so you're going to that conference in at the IPNC conference, and you're going to see me there, 
and I'm going to make eye contact with you. You're going to come over. I'm, in, I'm going to introduce <laughs> you to some people. And then you're going to just say like, hello. And then you're going to say, well, it was very nice meeting you and turn around and leave. <laughs> and so I did it. And then uh, the next day I left for France um, for a three-week vacation. You remember those when you were able to do that? Uh-huh. Um, you probably can now. Yeah, but, um, not really. <laughs> but um, carry anyway, on. so and I never, you know, I never called in those days. And, and I, anyway, I did call in the payphone, and there were a slew of messages from Dorothy. Please call Andre. And he said, these people really want to meet you. And, and so when I came back, I went and interviewed at King Estate, and, um, I, oh, and I got the job. That's right, so up, was, in, up in Oregon, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so I was there for a little over a year and a half, and then I came back. And the good news was that... Um, I, we had a house, and we, we were just finishing up, like, uh, we had built a house in St. Helena, mm-hmm. and we were doing the, all the wood frames and staining them and sanding them. And um, then uh, the bad news was I didn't have a job, but I had uh, gotten enough money to get me through um, February. And so um, I said, we finished working on the house, and I said, you know what, I need to get out of here because now is not the time to find a job. And so we said, let's go to Hawaii. We went to Hawaii for a month. And every morning my daughter, we'd take, uh, my daughter was just a a little one. She Mm -hmm. was four or five. And and go into a a place for breakfast and I'd say, we have a glass of orange juice and a double order of bacon. (laughs) And that would, because she needed a a piece of bacon in each hand. and uh, she'd bury me in the sand every day and just had an amazing time with her. Then I came back and I worked um, uh, 50-hour work weeks doing informational interviews. I'd call somebody and like I interviewed with Justin Meyer, with um, Corey Gott, uh, Carrie Gott, um, Mike Fisher, Linda Pawson. Linda Pawson teaches um, the, the executive speaking experience. So she'd say, "Well, why in the world would you want to interview with me?" I said, "I just I bring my my bring my resume. I want you to look at it. I want to tell you what I've done and what I want to do, and just critique my resume and and my you know my and when I'm talking in my presentation." And she said, "But why do you want to come and see me? I don't. I have nothing to do with these people." And I said, "You have eight students every month, at least." And who are they? <laughs> they're, they run wineries. They're winemakers. So you're going to, at lunch, when, they're, when you overhear somebody saying, I need a winemaker, you're going to say, oh, I've got a resume for you. There you go. <laughs> Mike Fisher. Good move. Same thing. But I had the greatest time doing that, Doug, because I saw, I could draw a caricature in my mind of a corporate-owned winery, which I cut my teeth in, family-owned winery, which I experienced it at King Estate, all these different, you know, I saw the, the cultures. And then when I um, uh, interviewed at Warren, with Warren, I had 10 interviews with Warren. The shortest was two hours, the longest was four. Wow. And I had um, two take-home assignments. One was, okay, take these, uh, this bottle of um, Reserve Chardonnay, this bottle of Sauvignon Blanc, and this Cast 23, home tonight, taste them and write a report on what you would, would have done during the growing season, harvest, um, blending, et cetera, to have made the wines better. 
Wow. Now that's that's something you either just freak out at or you just say, this is going to be fun and have fun with it. And, and I did and I got in trouble for it with him because um, George Shepler had given me a bottle of uh, Opus and I bought a bottle of Palmire because that was the, the hot Chardonnay at the time. Right. And the Sauvignon Blanc I had just gone through with uh, his team doing a competitive tasting, so I didn't really need to focus on, I didn't need any reference points on that one. So when I turned in my report the next day, I mean, you've worked with Warren, you've seen him. Right. He puts the paper down and he's got that look on his face and his eyes are burning through me. He said, I didn't ask you to taste Opus One or Paul Meyer. Why in the world did you do that? And I said, well, I thought you would appreciate some frame of reference mm-hmm. and you know and I it, so I did a little song and dance around it, and so it was okay um, and the other one was I had to re- write a report on how to get better color out of uh, Cabernet Sauvignon <laughs> so okay I just, I just want to make sure people know what we're talking about this is Warren Minarski owner of Stag's Leap Wine Cellar so you've got 10 interviews um, uh, interview seven or so he asked me uh, he said, you know, um, I don't, you don't have any red, red wine on the shelf. You only have white wine on the shelf. And I've tasted your blends of Pinot, but it's not Cabernet. And I know you worked at BV, but we've got a job here. There's two jobs, the associate winemaker job for Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, and then the job for the Napa Valley Program and Hawkcrest and Grower Relations. I know you can do those. So how about taking this other job? And I looked at him. He knew I had no income. He knew I just finished building the house, so I had a mortgage, and he was trying to find my limit. He was trying mm. to see what I was made of, right? Right. And I looked at him, I said, you know, I have enjoyed these interviews so much, and it's, I'm going to miss uh, hanging out with you, but no, there's no way I'm going to take that job. That's not the one we've been talking about. And his, he shot back, kind of, you know, slightly in his head, you know, his head went back, and he's like, you're kidding me. And he said, okay and i and i said so anyway it's been nice chatting with you and he goes no 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 wait i think we have more to talk about <laughs> so huh. we had a uh, three more interviews and the last interview he said well this is andre Chelchev again and this almost makes me it kind of makes me tear tears me up because he said i called dorothy and i asked her what would andre have said about you and he said so i want you to be my winemaker oh boy <laughs> but there was a catch boy <laughs> there was there was a catch, Doug. He said he offered me $10,000 a year less than what I'd been making in, in, in King Estate. And he said, you are on one year probation. At the end of one year, if you don't feel this is the right place for you, or if I don't feel you're the right, place, the right person for the place, then we'll go our separate ways. No hard feelings. And I said, I held out my hand and we shook hands. And right away what happened, that was, I started March 5th, uh, 1995. And um, in uh, the beginning of the, because they were, it was like a a pyramid top-down hierarchy, Mm -hmm. you know, where the cellar master had, the winemaker had all the knowledge and would dole out just enough to the cellar master to be able to to dole out a little bit to each of the cellar workers to to get things done. And um, And I said, I'm going to flip that. So if you look at a triangle, and you break that triangle up into triangles. There's one triangle that has, that's the base is wide, the top is wide, and the tip is down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, that's going to represent production, winemaking and viticulture. 
And so I said, we're going to put together a training program so that everyone goes from the entry level to seller position four, which includes some supervision and management. And we're going to bring everyone up to level four. And so the seller master didn't like that and, and left. Wow. And so uh, this is like we're approaching harvest. And Warren said, go out and find, you just find what, whoever you want as seller master. I don't care how much it costs, just get someone. And I was thinking about it, and I spoke with uh, Brooks Painter was the Hot Crest winemaker, Napa Valley winemaker, and mm -hmm. Julia Vinyarski was working with me. And I said, you know what? I want Benjamin to be the, the seller master. And they said, you can't put Benjamin there. He's never, he's just one of our, he's one of the two top seller workers. And I said, no, but he will be, we can teach him how to do this. Yeah. And they were, they were afraid of that. And they said, no. And, and I said, listen, you, I can teach someone how to manage. I can teach someone how to run a team. I can teach someone how to follow through on things. I can't teach people interpersonal skills like he has. You, no one could. He's got the. He's ready for this. They, so they, I, I said, I'm, I'm sorry. I worked by consensus, but it's one to three here. I'm going to go um, with my gut, and I, I want it to be Benjamin. So then I have to go present it to Warren. Warren, same pushback. No, you're going to fail. You know, it's not right. going to work. And then finally he says, you remember, Michael, that you have one year. And if he fails, you fail. And I said, I would bet my career on no one other than Benjamin Ochoa. And I said, it's one to four, but I, you got to let me do this. And it was the best decision to yeah. secure my career. Yeah. Oh, good and for after, you. One, after one year sometime... In late March of 96, I went to see Warren and I said, Warren, when are we going to meet to talk about, um, uh, you know, the job? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, my year probation's up. And he laughed at me and he said, go back out to the vineyard. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. God, he had a great winery for sure. And so you were with him. That was... The beginning of a, a, good, a good stint. You were there for, gosh, what, six, five, six years? Six years to the day. All right, and then uh, and then did you uh, did you go out looking, or did somebody come no. find you? No, I was I was so happy there. You know, people criticized uh, my decision. They said because uh, I had three different offers, and they they say we told you you should never go there. Um, I mean, you you know what Warren is like, and and I and I said you know, people have pools of people. That there are people in their pool that with whom they can work. Some people it's an ocean. Some people it's a lake. Other people it's a puddle. I happen to be in Warren's puddle, and I had such a great time there. But I, I was approached, and at first, uh, and that was in July of or June of 2000. And then I, I uh, that was with the recruiter, and I said, okay, well, I'm going to go on vacation in France for three weeks. So let's chat when I come back in August. Uh, what I really wanted to do was I, I called uh, Denis and I said, Denis, can you, because he consulted for all of the, he knew all the, the top, the, the first growths. And I said, can you hook me up with the first growth? And um, the person who sat next to me in class every day in Bordeaux was Eric Turby, who was the technical director at Mouton. So I got into Mouton easily. Huh. But he set me up with all these visits. And actually, Denis said to me, he said, if you really want to learn what's going on in Bordeaux right now, you should just go to the garagiste. And I said, okay, I'll visit some garagiste, but I need to know classic because 
He didn't know what I was doing this for, but I needed to be able to interview intelligently with the French, right. uh, Patrick Leon. And um, so that was preparing for that, those interviews. And um, so you do the personality test, you do the, all these different tests and meet the, uh, I think it was three, three interviews with the recruiters and one was supposed to be recorded interview. They had, uh, Donnie Dyer was their consulting winemaker to write questions, you know, for interviews. And I was, I was supposed to be recorded and I told Jody Shepard who was, it was her first, um, um, first assignment at placing someone. And, and I, I, I got to jump in here. Just I think sure, you, please. Um, just to make oh, sure yeah, everyone sorry. knows we're, yes. we're talking. No, we're talking about Opus One. So because Patrick Leon, he was uh, he was the president of Opus One at that point, or no, running it. He was he was winemaker at at Mouton. Oh, at Mouton. And, but yeah, he was involved yes. with the Opus One project. Yeah, he was on the them. he was on the board. He was the co-winemaker with Tim and Davi. Got it. Okay, so yes. the original team. And yeah. so this is uh, so they're they're recruiting you for. Uh, I was I was going to be a dove, a so dove. you have the t the two co winemakers. There were co CEOs. I had two half bosses, and I had two, and there were two co winemakers. Right, so it, I really and it was perfect. I was a dove of peace. So you'd have um, differences of opinion between Patrick and Tim. Tim, if you put on a blindfold and had those UN um, translator earphones, so you didn't know who was who, you would swear Tim was a French winemaker and Patrick was a Californian because the restrictions that they have in France, you know, they, he wanted to always bust out of that and do whatever, he, do things that were more extreme, Patrick. Right. Tim was, had learned from Lucien Siena, who was a co-winemaker with him for the, from 79 through 84. And so he was very, had a very restrained goal or sure. um, style. Style. But so you, so, that, so you were so, the go-between. So go I, I was the dove. The peacemaker. And it, we, we were like a three-legged three stool. So dove, what is that? That stands for um, Director of Viticulture and Enology. So <laughs> it, but I like to find correlations between these things. You know, like, oh, that has a meaning here. You know? Right. And it did. And then, then um, in May of 2003, I, I was uh, asked to fly at the last minute to uh, Miami and they say, get a room at the Mandarin Oriental and come to the board meeting. So I reported to the board meeting, and that was where I was told that I was now the sole winemaker, first sole winemaker, um, O-L-E and O-U-L, uh, of Opus One. Oh, I and didn't know that. So you, were, you, hired, you started Opus One 2001 as the Dove, mm -hmm. Director of yep. Viticulture Enology. And then, so O three, so three, you're promoted. I didn't know that. So you were... That was the first time there was just one winemaker, not co-winemakers, France and exactly. U.S. Exactly, Michael. I never knew that. Congratulations. That's that's that must have blown you away. Jeez. It it, it did, but it lasted only one year. Oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> no, no, no. Th this is what I mean, Doug. Oh. So I was a sole winemaker for 2003, and then in May of 2004, I'm on jury duty in uh, in Napa. And I'm a big daydreamer, and I was daydreaming about, and I wasn't on trial when this happened. That's good. I was daydreaming about the vineyard workers, how we taught them the principles of viticulture and practices we wanted here. And, um, and they had done things that helped us to improve the quality of the, of the grape berries coming into the winery. And I was thinking about how they did that. They improved the quality. And then I started thinking about the cellar crew. And, I, and you've got one of our, the first cellar crew members that worked here. 
Fernando. Fernando, Ochoa, yeah. Who's fantastic. One of the nicest people on earth. Yeah, he's great. Um, anyway, so um, I was daydreaming about them, and I was thinking, well, they know the mechanisms of winemaking, but I don't know if they feel it in their tripes. Hmm. So I come back to the winery, get the six cellar, six cellar workers together, and I told them my story, except I didn't tell them, I don't know if you're passionate about what you do or have any feelings for it, but I said, I'm going to divide you into two teams of three. I decide who goes on each team because I want you to have some differences of opinion. I don't want the three buddies together with three people, uh, three others. I, I want um, you to um, learn to reach consensus on everything. I'm giving each team 22 rows of vineyard in our best vineyard, and you're going to prune, sucker, do green harvest, fruit drops, and taste to make harvest decisions, and you'll each have uh, small stainless steel tanks in which you will ferment two tons of fruit, making 120 cases of wine or 1,400 bottles. And they looked at me and they said, no, 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 no. We don't make decisions. We do what you tell us to do. And I said, that's the problem. Until everyone at Opus One is engaged in the pursuit of absolute wine quality, we can't get to the next level fast enough. So I'm not asking you if you want to do this. I'm telling you you will do this. And I'm not, I was thinking about everyone. And so what we're going to do is you three will each be together for as long as you're at Opus with the same 22 rows of vines for, for this project, which will be an annual project. And each year we're going to have for each team a vineyard worker, um, a, guest, uh, a tour guide, and an office worker on your team. So since uh, then, Doug, up until this year, we have um, had 110 non-production employees make wine at Opus One. So beginning in 2004, I was no longer the sole winemaker. <laughs> yeah, but you're the leader. Good for you. So that was 2003. So was Constellation purchased Mondavi in 04? How, so now they're 50% owners of Opus One. What was that like for you? Big, big changes or things stay the same? It was, there were changes because before you had two families um, trying to work in a 50-50 joint venture and sometimes it was a little tense. Mm -hmm. um, and then when Constellation came in, uh, Philippines Rothschild and Xavier de Gazir negotiated extremely well to make sure that, um, that it was understood that Opus was to become independent and that Opus was, um, uh, so my decisions, the sales and marketing decisions, all decisions were made by the team on site and we would have a CEO, uh, no co-CEOs. And that CEO would be paid by Opus. The co-CEOs were paid by the motherships, by Mandavi or by Mouton. Okay. And so that was a, another big change and that happened in 2004. But, um, there really wasn't that much of a change. I, I just felt that um, more freedom and there was less tension uh, because Constellation, they were, they were great. Um, they, they, they saw we knew what we were doing and they let us do what we were doing. Um, so that was, that was a, I thought it was a very positive change. Oh, good to hear. I, I've been in, everywhere I've been, Beaulieu, Tom Selfridge, there will be no change here and I had four different positions. Well, is it bully you? The last position was where they sold um, Christian Brothers in Quail Ridge, and Inglenook and Bully came back to uh, Bully and I was on the winemaking team at Bully, winemaking vit team. Um, 
King Estate was in, in constant, I mean, it was an entrepreneurial um, atmosphere. Right. Um, in Stagsy Pine Cellars, we had, constru- we had construction projects going on every single year. <laughs> My first year, they were, the, the welder was still welding uh, spots on the platform for the, that w- where we would bring the Chardonnay in macro bins and empty them into, um, into a conveyor belt, which would go into the press. As he was finishing up his last touches, the first truck came in. I mean, that's the way it happened at Stagsy Point Cellars. They peeled off the whole outside of a building. When, every year we had a construction project, and so um, yeah. I, I was used to, uh, used, to. used to that. So then here we have you know, we had change also. I would have expected less change here, but there has been an evolution here as well. Well, I was going to ask you about that. You've been there quite a long time, 20 years, I think. So... You've been there for lots of changes in the vineyard and the cellar. Anything that that stands out as being that worked really well, that you know, while you've been there, improved quality. Yeah, the, the actually the biggest, uh, the, well, one of the biggest improvements was what I did right off the bat, and I well, first of all, I came in with my um, my lips sealed mm-hmm. and my ears wide open and my eyes wide open, and I my question to myself was, what can I do that would have the biggest impact on improving wine quality? And and it's like in life you have, whether it's your professional life or your personal life, you have a honeymoon period, right? And your personal life, you never want the honeymoon to end. Your professional life, I'd, I've always wanted to end it with something that would not get me fired, but would have the biggest impact on wine or grape quality. So I determined that we needed, I needed 27 vineyard workers, 24 vineyard workers, two supervisors, and one vineyard manager to be dedicated exclusively to Opus One, out of the, carve them out of the Mandavi team. They had, I think, 11 different teams. All I needed was three. And so I convinced the Mandavi uh, vineyard management team to let me, to, to do this. And I remember they said, um, this is, I started uh, on them right away in April, of 01 and they said okay yeah we can do that but let's uh, get through harvest and we'll we'll do it and i said no tim and patrick are going to be coming for the the um, summer technical meetings and i want them when we go to the vineyard to see that there's no barrier between no hedge between me and the vineyard workers they know who i am and i know who they are so it has to happen now so they did it and we didn't ask permission we just did it and they sent out an, a memo saying this. So that was the first um, uh, sin, so to speak. But the cardinal sin was that they named, they named one team Opus 1 and the second one Opus 2. Oh, no, no, no. I can't do that. <laughs> so I get called into the co-CEO's office, and they're both at each other's throats. Not really, but kind of thinking that the other orchestrated this. And here I am, the little lamb that comes in. And I said, no, actually, it was me. Uh, and these are the reason. This is the reason I did it, and I explained it to them. And they're sitting there with their eyes, you know, like looking at me, like they dumbfounded. Who does this guy think he is? And I was excused from the um, from the meeting, and brought back in. They called me back in. They said, you know, that you can't just do things like this. You you have to. That's why we have co winemakers. You know, you have to consult with people, and you you have to go through the process. And I said, oh darn, you know. And but but. What they, they were amazed that I did it, but you know what I think they were more amazed at? <laughs> was that I actually admitted that it was me. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I said, well, I just asked, and they're the ones that made the decision. No, I said, it was me. I talked them into it. And they said, don't do that anymore. Now, granted, Doug, I knew that I had to do breach consensus, but did I have five years to work on that? No, because every time, you know, I could see this being a negotiation between the two, each getting something out of it to give me a team. And I just said, I just did it. So I didn't get fired for doing it, but I got a severe looking look over. <laughs> right. Um, but that, that I think is to this day one of the biggest contributions to wine quality at Opus One. Huh. Good for you. Congratulations. Um, yeah. Well, I. That's uh, and I I'm I'm in your camp, you know, 100. percent The relationship between vineyard and cellar and making sure everybody's on the same page, you know, the upside down pyramid is uh, is vital to quality for sure. Yeah, I got a question for you. I've tell me about overture. I've never known the story of that, which is it's it's just it's a another wine that you make at Opus, right? What's what's the story on that? Um, first of all, it's a true second wine. Uh, we make Opus from our forest state vineyards. Okay. And whatever lots don't go into overture, uh, Opus one are available for overture. Okay. So we, once we finish the blending process for Opus, we then uh, start the blending process for overture. Blending for Opus takes about four to six weeks, you know, just going back and forth, taking mm -hmm. time in between. Uh, overture's uh, uh, done a little bit more quickly, but it's not just like, the worst lots, quote unquote. Oh no, I'm with you. Because yeah. because y you know as well as I do that you can take the five best basketball pro basketball players in the United States and put them on the Olympic team and they might lose because there's no chemistry, there's mm -hmm. no teamwork. So there are some outstanding lots that are excluded from Opus because they just don't fit. They take right. the wine, the blend in a, in the wrong direction, and those are available for overture. So the first overture was made in 1993. Okay. A couple of reasons for why they did it. One was they made this wine and then whatever was left over, they sold on the, on the bulk market uh, at a very low price. Secondly, that put a lot of pressure on the winemaking team to put as much wine into Opus as, to make the biggest blend possible because for financial reasons, I, I'm not supposed to think about the cost of things. I'm only supposed to be thinking about wine quality. And that's the way they should have been. They were probably thinking. Right. I'm sure they were. Um, so then that, and that started in 1993. I, and it was available at the winery in the, in the partner's room. We never poured it uh, for people to taste. You buy a bottle and, you know, trust us. And it developed its own little cult following. And then, uh, I can't remember. I'm bad with years now. But, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, um, we started to to offer a taste at the beginning of a tour. <clears throat> and then we <clears throat> wanted to see what, how it would do in the, in the market. So there was a test market in the summer done in Southern California. And then don't laugh in Florida because no, who's buying red wine in Florida in the summer? But, um, but it was successful. And then it was put into 10 or 12 states. And now it's sold, you know, 60% of our wine is sold outside of the United States. Mm -hmm through La Place in Bordeaux, through 22 Negociants. And it just now started to go through the La Place, and so some is sold internationally. It's always been um, uh, sought after and like a cult wine in Japan. David Pearson and I were on, uh, on a market visit in, in, in uh, Japan, I 
think it was 04 or 07. And uh, we went to the New York Grill at the top of the um, Park Hyde in Tokyo. And I said, oh, David, they have a, a vertical by the glass of Opus. <laughs> and he goes, oh, yeah, that's great. And I said, oh, my gosh, they got Overture. That's not legal. And he said, no, it's not. He goes, but don't say anything. Yeah. A glass, and you know the pores are short there. Yes. $180 for a short pour of Overture. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and we were just blown away. But what would happen is, you know, people would come to, to visit and they'd, they'd buy a case of Opus and take it back and sell it to a restaurant or whatever. Yeah. That's, that, I, yep. Those, those things happen. So, yeah, you mentioned your distribution, Opus One. I mean, the wine is well represented all over the world. It's beautiful. And, um, but for all our folks out listening, I mean, there's, are there other ways people can get a hold of Opus? You guys have a website, and uh, where else can they purchase Opus or Overture? Well, the best place to purchase is to come and visit. We have a brand new uh, partner's room, which is beautiful. Okay. And it has a really nice view. Um, so that's the best way to, to come and taste and then buy some. We do have a website, and you can dry it, buy it directly from us. Okay. So we have direct-to-consumer. Uh, we there are plenty of retail shops in the United States uh, that bottle shops that that sell uh, Opus One. Um, we used to, we actually we were sixty percent uh, on premise, forty percent off for the longest time, mm -hmm. and then a year ago, you know what happened? Yeah, that changed. And we I have to give credit to Chris Avery, who was our the VP of Sales and Domestic Sales. He saw that and he went boom, went to eighty percent. Um, uh, retail and 20% or 10% uh, on-premise with 10% to go wherever, you know, just have as a backup. But that was, uh, you know, just another change in our lives, right? Yeah, for all of us, without a doubt. For all of us. You bet. Well, Mr. Salachi, I want to thank you for taking this time. This has been great to hear your story. There's a whole lot about your life that I did not know and I do now. So um, I look forward to getting together and having a glass of wine and hearing more stories so thanks for your time my friend and like like to hear more of yours doug okay well yeah right. they'll have to do those off air they're not they're not PG. yes <laughs> okay <laughs> all right all right man. thank you, you so much you bet take care we'll see you around okay thanks. bye bye, bye. michael salachi what a story and what amazing wines this guy is making i hope you enjoyed that and i hope you get a chance to try both of his wines opus one and overture i think you'll find a lot to like if you enjoy what you hear on The Taste, please take a moment to give us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show and hear more great stories like the ones you heard today. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next time.